Dr. Jennifer Kasten is a practicing pediatric pathologist with degrees in medicine from the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, infectious disease epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a year's postgraduate work in mathematical modeling of infectious disease at Oxford University, and a master's in the history of medicine and science, also from Oxford University. Now, that's a lot of school. She's only had a Facebook page since March, but she has already become a phenomenon with many of her posts going viral, and if you don't follow her, you should. Her understanding of pathology, lab testing, virology, and mathematical modeling make her uniquely suited to understand so many facets of this pandemic. So I crowdsourced some questions from the COVID-19 physician group, and she was kind enough to sit down with me for over an hour and a half answering those questions, virtually, of course. In the second half, we discuss some of the sequelae, like coagulopathy, but we really spend most of the time talking about the path forward, herd immunity, cross-immunity from other coronaviruses, durability of immunity, a vaccine, and the quirk of spread among children, or rather, lack thereof. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming. Wondering if you're getting the best prices and discounts while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spending hours sorting through numerous insurance options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the insurances that they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, request your quotes online. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, apply risk-free. Be confident you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With discounts for doctors in training and some relaxed requirements during the pandemic, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash partner slash PGD. Again, that's PatternLife.com slash partner slash PGD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. You know, we're being asked to allow people to go back to work, right? And now the CDC has guidelines on back to work, and it follows symptoms, Right. It doesn't follow swab negativity, but we're being put in the position that that's what people are asking for. That's what companies are asking for. Is there a specific reason or a cogent argument for not doing the testing? Right, I, in order I, can't, to- I can't think of one. I don't want to contradict the CEC. They might have been saying that in, in a climate of testing scarcity, yeah. which is it's still the case in various parts of the country. But if you're detecting RNA, couldn't you be detecting degraded RNA in a patient who is currently asymptomatic and no longer? Absolutely right. And we've seen that, especially there's been some good data out of Korea that's shown that, that people that have these very long lingering infective courses where they first tested positive five or six weeks prior, they've been utterly asymptomatic for three weeks, but they still show a positive uh, RNA that's been recovered, has not been able to infect cells. So it's not infectious virus. There's been some internal CDC data that they haven't published that backs that up pretty nicely. But 
I say- you, Those the, are the zebras. Well, I say, here, here's what I say. You should probably assume if you are getting viral RNA out of a COVID patient's nose, you should probably assume that it's infectious. On the other hand, if you are getting viral RNA off of a table in a room where a COVID patient was, you know, hours or days prior, you should probably assume it's not infectious. You're just playing the odds. Okay, but those these few patients that have had this lingering case where they they were symptomatic, they've been asymptomatic for a long time, but you swab them over and over again, and they're still positive. We just have to assume that they are. They just can't go back to work. They're still. I mean, I, wouldn't you say that just seems sensible? Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you want to do viral cultural experiments and have them sneeze into a petri dish. I think these are busy outpatient practices where they're seeing like thirty patients a day. I'm not sure. But they that's have how it works on TV. Yeah. you have your lab right. Yeah, in the back. you've got your lab right next door, like you <laughs> with your microscope in yeah. your Facebook picture. Yeah, that's me. You carry your microscope everywhere. I carry it around. Yeah, have microscope. Who doesn't have microscope or higher? Will, will travel. Will travel. When's the best time to test someone? Like, does that does that change? So if we Tuesday suspect someone, <laughs> forty-two. So if we have someone who tests who's highly suspicious, we suspect a false negative. We want to bring them back and do a second test. Is there the right time to do it when we should expect maybe a higher higher viral load? So there'll be more sensitivity, or we just do the same test again, or should we? change tests and maybe look for IgM? That is, those are all wonderful questions. And that is why a lot of the big medical societies are in the process of coming up with a national testing strategy. So people don't have to come up with these ad hoc algorithms and reinvent the wheel at every single place where they practice. All of those are extraordinarily valid questions to go into the national testing strategy. So, I mean, you should give it a little bit of time, right? Don't you think? I mean, at least, you know, some time for the virus to replicate, some time for it to double. The problem with serology, and I I think we will come up with a nice algorithm that involves serology as well as as diagnostic PCR. But the thing is, IgM rises so extraordinarily late in this virus that it's basically concomitant with IgG. It's very unreliable before about 10 days. And then by day 14 or so, it's pretty reliable. So if you're going to make an antibody response, you're going to usually make it by day 14. And IgG is coming up right around the same time. So you have this period where a very large fraction of patients are going to have A, positivity for infectious virus, B, positivity for IgM, and C, positivity for IgG all simultaneously. And conversely, the IgM could wane. You could still have someone with infectious virus and IgG. So simply screening people with IgG and saying, aha, they're immune, I don't think that's a good strategy. Because you'll, you'll need to reflex to PCR to make sure they aren't in that window. But like I said, this isn't just me sitting here in this chair. All of the specialty societies are working really hard on putting this into guidance. So the IgM and the IgG, that gets to your ER question, yes. right? The ER, what is the ER question? The epidemiological ER question is, how big is the denominator, basically? Oh, I'm confused. Sorry, I'm confusing ER questions. I thought the ER... My mistake. Um, it was about the uh, immunity, right? Well, we... it's, it's, the, it's the serology question. So yeah. okay. it's, it's how many people have been infected and how many people are immune. So most epidemics are modeled in three and sometimes four compartments of the population. S, I, and R. Susceptible, infected, and recovered. And you model 
how people move from compartment to compartment. And the until we started ha having any population level serology data, the R compartment was an absolute unknown. And the size of the R compartment dictates absolutely everything. It dictates all the true rates. So what's the true infection or case fatality rate? What's the true hospitalization rate? What's the true ICU admission rate? The true mechanical ventilation rate? All the things we want to know. More importantly, it shows how many people in the population are immune. So we can actually start to guess what's our herd immunity threshold, our HIT, how close are we to it? It will help us figure out if uh, antibody response actually confers individual immunity as all the data quite encouragingly is pointing to, but of course hasn't convincingly demonstrated yet. So I, I try to divide, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a simplification, but I divide the epidemiology of this whole thing into two camps. One I call the big denominator model, which is where there's a huge fraction of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infections. And the other model I call the cases or the cases model, which is where basically people say, sure, there's certainly cases we haven't captured, but the ones that we've got documented are a pretty good proxy for how things are going on. And that was the dominant model in the U.S. until April. And it's the model, for example, that the IHME used when they made all of those projections that the White House based their policy on that most of us discuss on social media quite a lot. Um, that's a pure statistical extrapolation. That's all it is. There's no, that's not even an epidemiological model. It's a statistical model and it just models the shape of the curve. So you have to assume that each data point on that curve is accurate, which is what they were doing. So if, if you, we can go back to New York. I think New York's a great example. Again, New York would be anyone's pick for our U.S. domestic hotspot, right? And yet we didn't have a single case reported until March 1st in New York City or New York State. Um, and the first case in Seattle was January 20th. So what was going on? The first case was a woman who was a healthcare worker who had just come back from Iran and she became sick. And so everyone said, right, well, that fits the narrative. And she was isolated and quarantined. The very next day, March 2nd, case two, was that gentleman in New Rochelle who, again, mostly socialized with members of his synagogue, worked in a small law firm he owns with his wife in Midtown, and obviously had no connections whatsoever to foreign travel. And even then, people said, well, it's a mystery, but somehow it must have happened somehow. So they quarantined New Rochelle, right, with the National Guard. So that again, worked. That worked really well. Yeah. So okay. the cases are the cases model. You basically assume that all your data points are more or less accurate and you go from there. Now, they're, they're more and more and more accurate. And, and people might be saying, well, are we getting closer? Because we're testing so much more widely. How can we know if we're getting closer? I think the New York area is a really great place to start because um, one of the best markers for how well we're doing in capturing cases is the percentage of tests which are positive. So if you're testing literally everybody in the country, let's say 300 million of us, the fraction of tests which are positive is going to be very low, heterogeneous, but very low. In New York, in April, in early April, there were zip codes in the five boroughs where the percentage of tests which were positive approached 80%. Oh, yeah. Well, for the, the entire zip code. The hoops that you needed to jump through yeah. in order to be able to test people were absurd. Were absurd. I mean, we, we know we have, everywhere has a severity. Because we had six kits 
for 8 million people. For 8 million people. Yeah. And it took, it, we can go into why it took so long to get testing up and running if you like, but, but if it is there now is the point. It's there now. And so we should be seeing that percentage of tests which are positive fall and fall and fall and fall. And that's how we'll know we're getting closer. I mean, just, just to say that, let's say 21% of New York City was exposed. We need to see at least that percentage get down to 21%, right? It's well above that still. So once, it's, once we've comfortably started ascertaining and capturing the cases, we can really start filling in a lot of the dots. And our, our, all of our extrapolations and our curves are going to be much more accurate. And much more importantly than, who, I mean, than just a curve that somebody's drawing on, on Excel, it's also going to inform phase two. Phase two is the mop-up. Phase two is the active case searching stage for the second wave. And I always tell everyone, a resurgence of cases in the second wave is absolutely inevitable. It does not mean everything failed in the first wave. And it most certainly does not mean necessarily that the second wave is going to be as bad as the first wave. No, if, if there's no second wave, it means we waited too long to open up. <laughs> right. Because well, we're, yeah. Yeah, like, potentially. Like there should be there should be at least a little bit of a bump when yeah. we open. Like, how could there not be? How could Unless not we're be? already at herd immunity. But I, I think even, correct me if I'm wrong, even if we are not, even if we're close to herd immunity, like you're going to see a bump just because more people are interacting with each other. Right. And so, so now it, like, it, you know. So it washes two, out because yeah. you have that beta coefficient about the number of contacts. That's going to start. Yeah. But if you already have a lot of people in the community who are immune, transmission is much slower naturally. So, and I, I, people need to know this too. Sometimes they get confused. So whatever the herd immunity number is, the magic number, the hit, let's say it's 50%. Let's just pretend I'm making that up. As you approach 50%, it becomes slower and slower and slower and harder and harder and harder to successfully infect somebody for cases to spread. R0 is naturally very, very, very low. When it hits the HIT, it becomes zero. It truly extinguishes itself. The epidemic extinguishes itself. But below that, it's going to be, you know, 0.1, right? Right before it gets there. 0.2 when it's a little bit farther away, right? So... Even, even if we're only halfway there at 21%, and let's say it's truly 40%, that, that makes an enormous dent in transmission. It's so much slower and so much harder. So any successful strategy for phase two involves a lot of labor on the part of the health department because it's going to involve a lot of active case searching and tracking people and quarantining their contacts and just tracing all their contacts. So until you have widespread testing in place, until you know how many cases you're dealing with, and more than that, who they are, you can't, in my opinion, open up. It's just automatic, like that's automatic step one before, before allowing people to mix again, is getting a good finger on the pulse of active infection, being ready to quarantine and contain it once things mix again. And I would also say serology testing should be part of that too. You really wanna know how many people are immune how, how widespread was the prevalence in your place the first go around? Because while New York City is 21%, where I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, we would be very, I would be very surprised if it was as high as 5%, very high. And whatever the HIT is, it's definitely higher than five. So if we don't have any control right now in, our, in my place over how many people are infected and who they are, I mean, 5% immune isn't going to do anything. Yeah. 
Well, one of the assumptions there is if you are in the R category, mm-hmm. right, recovered, that means you are immune. Yeah, and I think that's a reasonable assumption. I know a lot of people are squirrely about that, but I think yes. it's a very good assumption. Why? The reason why there's appropriate caution and messaging about that is that immunity is, we're talking about durable immunity. The virus has only been around for five months. So it's impossible without a time machine to say that having antibodies is protective for 12 months or 24 months, right? It's impossible. So we can't know. And the WHO, the CDC, the the NHS in Britain, everyone is appropriately cautious and saying, listen up governments as well as individuals. If you're making reentry strategies based on assumptions that immunity is durable, we can't give you that. You have to understand we can't give you that and you are incurring risk. Now, the public heard that. They heard there is no evidence for durable immunity and they translated it to there is evidence against durable immunity, right? Even doctors did that. I think we can say on our Facebook groups, there was a lot of uh, hands in the air about this. And on the contrary, though, we have some really good evidence. We have excellent neutralizing antibody evidence. It shows very good protection in people who've been infected against future infection. There's also the monkey evidence. I like this monkey trial where rhesus macaques had, um, they were all COVID positive. They were allowed to recover. And then they all had very large doses of virus shoved up their noses and none of them seroconverted. We're not going to do that experiment in humans, obviously. Well, but the fact that convalescent plasma helps convalescent in recovery. With the neutralizing antibodies is exactly right. Yeah. So we, yeah. have, we have that in vivo data too, that shows that quite nicely. And, you know, we don't yet have, even though there's been millions of cases now in the world, we don't yet have a convincing case of someone who is reinfected. That's very encouraging. But the question is how long, at least given similar viruses, right? Like MERS or Mm -hmm. alpha coronaviruses, Mm -hmm. that how long do those, how long do you have immunity for those? Well, there's some good work that's been done by people who who model these viruses for a living. Florian Kramer at, at Mount Sinai is one of them that basically says we should count on up to two years of good, good durable immunity after which antibody titers wane. They don't go to zero, but they do wane. We definitely know that immunity to coronaviruses, all the other ones at least, has never been lifelong. Yeah. So we don't expect that. But what we do hope is that there be enough time to bridge us to a vaccine. Yeah. One thing that comes up, you mentioned it earlier, is the mutation rate of the virus. And right now, all the mutations in the virus have basically been harmless SNPs. There's not been anything that's been a gain of function mutation. There's nothing that's increased its virulence or its infectivity, there's nothing that's involved any of its antigenic expression such that the immune system would have difficulty recognizing it. It's been great for phylogeny because it's been great for us to be able to track clades and strains as they've you know, moved throughout the world. We can do some really cool stuff with that. I mean, it was fascinating to see how all most of the domestic epidemics in the United States were seeded from New York City. It was pretty cool in early March before the lockdown. But nothing that should should alarm us in terms of this virus is mutating at the rate of influenza and it's going to inv- evade the immune system. And if it does, it seems to be mutating at a rate that's at least a half as slow as influenza. The earliest data said it was eight times slower than influenza. But even if it does, well, we make 
seasonal flu vaccines. We make annual flu vaccines and we take them every year and that's that. You know, it's not an impossible problem to solve. Yeah. If we have two years, though, of durable immunity, that should be enough time, I would hope, to bridge us all over to a, a vaccine. A vaccine, and then you get your flu shot, you get your coronavirus mm-hmm. shot. Uh, yeah, I mean, COVID, I think and- COVID is going to be with us forever. You know, it's going to be part of every respiratory virus panel that you ever run in the future in a hospital. You know, it's going to be a seasonal thing. It's going to be reported in MMWR every year. It's, it's, it's here to stay. It jumped, just like every other virus that we have jumped. So let's talk about antibody testing. Right, because now we're getting some of the, we're getting a lot of that or all of that data from the antibody testing, but the tests are not great. Right? Well, there's there's good news on that front. So six weeks ago, it was the wild wild west, and I think people who read my blog know about this. But quickly, the FDA in the state of a public health emergency, which was declared in early February, basically dismantled all of the normal regulation surrounding testing. Let the market decide. Well, that's basically what happened. And so we're so used to having such an enormous amount of goodwill and trust in the quality of our tests and our devices and our drugs that we it took some time for everybody to adjust. But basically, that's exactly what happened. So normally in a public health emergency, you could apply for something called a EUA, emergency use authorization. So you would submit your data about how good your test was and the validation data and the safety profile and all that. You'd submit it to the FDA and then give you, they would, they would take it at face value. They wouldn't independently verify it. That is approval and that takes years. And that's when they basically go through everything with a fine tooth comb and say, hey, you weren't lying. This thing works. That's awesome. There's no time for that. So now they just take it at face value and say, okay, we believe you. Well, even that wasn't fast enough. So they just finally said, all right, everybody, we ride it done. Saddle up. <laughs> And they said, all you have to do now is you can bring your test to the market. You can offer it to people. All you have to do is notify us that you will apply for an EUA within 15 days. So there was no validation that you could have been making it up entirely. And so as a result... Just pregnancy, relabeled pregnancy tests. It could have been. Within within a month, there were 90 different serology tests on the market in the United States. And and they were... Free market. Free so market. That, that's, if people want a free market without government that's regulation, what that's you what get. you get. And I mean, some of them were literally substantially worse than flipping a coin. The city of Laredo, Texas is an unfortunate example where they decided they wanted to be the first city to do a serum survey, which is awesome. They bought uh, $500,000 worth of tests with city money from China. And the test had a 20% reliability rate. Oh. So it's worse than flipping a coin. Yeah. Literally, you should, you should whatever that test says, you should do the opposite because then that would be 80% right. <laughs> right? I mean, so we're just not- well, It was just backwards. That That's what it was. The test exactly, was just backwards. Right, right. Yeah, it was actually yeah. not a bad exactly. test. Not a good one, but not a bad one. It was <laughs> um, just backwards. We're, we're just not used to that in the United States. Yeah. That, yeah. Right? We don't have that degree of suspicion. So, that, so the good news is that, first off, several very high quality, very um, accurate, reliable tests are on the market now from very established actors, both commercial spaces, as well as all of our famous academic institutions who've developed their own in-house laboratory developed tests. So we're in a great space now. Okay. The other great news is that the FDA clamped down on all of those like jokers and hazmat suits and parking lots who bought tests off the internet, all that, yeah. that's over. 
you okay. now have to run these tests in a laboratory with a CLIA certificate and all that. Got it. Okay. Um, so we're in, we're in much better shape is the bottom line. Because that, that's where some of the questions were going is like, what, what should we even be telling our patients about the antibody testing? But I guess let's update it for now that the tests are reliable. What? That's reliable. So here's, we, here's okay. the thing. Right now, they are a public health act and they are not a clinical act. So if, if you perform antibody testing on your patients, you are contributing to knowledge and the public good but you are not yet contributing to the care of that individual patient. Got it. It's not accurate enough. It shouldn't be utilized in patient management. So they shouldn't yeah. be making any decisions based on that. Well, I mean, again, we're, we're rolling all the data that we're collecting into a national testing strategy. The other really important thing to remember, again, everybody's favorite class, biostatistics, is that the positive <laughs> predictive value of a test is predicated on the prevalence, right? Say that again yes. for the people in the back. The PPV is predicated on the prevalence. So- a positive result where you practice in Nassau County is probably a lot more reliable than a positive test in northern Minnesota. Yeah. Right? And and so we won't know the prevalence, though, until we test lots and lots and lots of people and get an idea of it. Right? So it's it's this sort of murky state of unknowing right now. So that's the answer, is when our patients ask about antibody testing, we will tell them, yes, you can have it. It yeah. might satisfy your curiosity but it's not reliable enough to do anything but to contribute to the public good. Thank you for your contribution. Yes. Okay. Gold star. Okay, great. Gold star. So, you, you know, you mentioned two years of, potentially two years of immunity to get us to a vaccine. So can you provide us with any information about that? Or what, you know, what do you know so far about that in terms of historical challenges, where we are so far, and the fact that, you know, you mentioned the mutations. The mutation rate isn't, isn't that fast, so we should be able to stay, stay ahead of it, at least for now. Well, what's, what's amazing is the breakneck pace of scientific research and advancement into the vaccine development. And COVID has brought the world together in ways that we've never seen before. And it's, it's really encouraging, I think. If my town's Facebook group is any reflection, it is not bringing us together. It is this was devoid of political posts, and now it is nothing but political. And this is like the school district. And yeah. it's, just, it's, just, it's just, it's tearing us apart. But, you're right, but, but in terms of STEM, right? Science yeah. and knowledge, right? It's bringing yeah. us together. And we're all, we're all in it together. We, right. have a common, we have a common enemy. There's nothing that brings us better together than a common enemy. So, exactly yeah. Exactly right. And so, so there, I mean, there's hundreds of vaccine candidates which are in development. Phase one of vaccine development is just proof of concept and usually in vitro studies. Phase two is when you start trying it on humans. And so we're in phase two trials already, which is unbelievable, given that this virus didn't exist until November and wasn't recognized in sequence, et cetera, until January. So I'm encouraged by that. There's a few candidates that have already sort of leapt to the forefront. One of them is this vaccine that's been developed at Oxford. And one of the reasons they were able to get into human trials so quickly is that they had been working on a coronavirus vaccine already. So they already had a lot of this baseline safety data and all that. So they could just kind of fast forward. Um, I, I think people should be appropriately cautious, though, about promises to bring a vaccine to market within a couple of months, because part of part of it is how durable, again, is the immunity. So you need to inject people up with it and then measure their antibodies at a month and then measure them at two months and then at six months and then at a year, et cetera, right? And you, if you bring it to market too quickly, you just won't have that data. 
that might be a trade-off that we are all willing to make. And we might we might accept an inferior vaccine as a stand-in while the, the better, more permanent ones are, are still in development or something. There might be an issue of risk, right? There might there be is. certain people in the public who are willing to take the risk because they need to go back to work, you know, for a, for a variety of reasons. And I was just like, yeah. give me what you've got so far. Yeah. I'm willing to, I'm willing to take it. And then we also might have to fast forward through testing in special groups like children. What's the safety profile in children? Yeah. Uh, what's the safety profile in pregnant women? Do antibodies pass from the pregnant woman across the placenta? All that sort of stuff we won't know. Yeah. Again, that might be something we're just willing to accept. Um, certainly nothing will be brought to market without the baseline safety data in terms of adverse events and reactivity and dose and, you know, cross-infection and all that sort of thing. But but the, the immunity question is one that you can't really fast-forward through, and we yeah. might have to fast-forward through it. It just depends, I think, on how bad the third wave is, the seasonal fall-winter wave. If it If it turns out to be bad, because again, if this virus does have a seasonal niche, we expect a pretty good flare up again in the autumn. And if it turns out to be bad, people might say, okay, that's it. No time. Let's get the vaccine. So that brings us to another question about autumn and the start of school. Because it seems like camps are can- like schools, at least in New York, uh, schools canceled for the rest of the year. Camps are canceled. Mm-hmm. And everyone's hoping that schools are going to start starting in the fall. And this is childcare, right? It's not like, my kids need to go to camp. It's, I need to go to work. Like we have two working parents. Our kids need to go somewhere. You know, my parents can help, but like they're at the high risk people. Um, we don't have extended family in the area. Right. How, how am I going to work without, without child? Like that was my child care. So. Well, yeah. That brings up all of the questions about the secondary effects of lockdown. Right. Yeah. And that's something people ask me to comment on all the time. And I say, I have absolutely no qualifications to do so. I, I truly can't calculate economic damages. Yeah. And I truly can't say this is how much a life is worth or any of that. I can't do that. But I'm, not, I'm, I'm certainly aware of those questions. And yes, for children, I think there's a lot of encouraging data that shows epidemiologically they don't function like adults. Now, adolescents do. Older adolescents do. They and when I say how they function, I mean yeah, yeah. I've, if you've seen they, my kids eat, then you know yeah. they do not function like adults. They do not. Yes, but also, can they transmit the virus to others the same way that adults transmit it to others? Adolescents, the answer seems to be yes. Even though, of course, they do well. They don't get sick and die at the same rates as adults, but they they are vectors. Yeah. Whereas younger children mostly seem to be dead ends. Now, when I say mostly, I mean mostly. I'm not saying it's zero. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But it happens at much lower rates. And so How that, do you know that? That comes from a lot of observational data. So other nations, not ours, have done really good case cluster tracing. And in China and Korea and then in a few places in Europe, they looked at all the clusters and saw who was the first person. And again, a unit of transmission is almost always the family or the household. It's not the community for children. This was before schools were shut and all that too. Um, And so they would see, you know, adults get infected. They bring the infection into the household. Everyone in the household gets infected, but then it just kind of stops. Children don't seem to spread it to each other in schools very much. Isn't that 
counter to it's so counterintuitive to all of us who have young children who see them as living adorable petri dishes yeah like that snot on the tricks box is everywhere in my house like you know, they all get, but the school, they all get each like one kid gets a cold, they all get the cold, right? That's how so how is this one? There was a really nice shoe leather epidemiology study from, from Europe for, tracing an infection cluster from this ski chalet where people from the UK and France and Italy were all sharing the chalet, including a nine-year-old boy from France. They all got infected. They all went back to their home countries and spread the infection to everybody else, including the boy who went to school. And they traced this boy, because again, this was in the earliest stages before school shut. This was in January, in early Feb. And this boy had contact with 114 people. And he was actually co-infected with another respiratory virus at the same time. And he spread the other respiratory virus. So other people picked up his secondary infection, but nobody else caught COVID from him. Now that's an N of one, so don't get me wrong, but it's yeah. we just don't have that detailed granular data on that many people. Norway looked at all of their initial case clusters and found that only four of the infection chains involved children, and they were all adolescents. And, and so only four chains had an adolescent who actually successfully transmitted the case on to somebody else. And in all the other instances, the children were just dead ends. So that's why Norway decided to reopen schools for children under 15. Sweden always kept them open for children under 15. Uh, The Netherlands had almost no cases reported in the pediatric age group at all, which is why they reopened schools for younger children. Again, adolescents, even though they do well, they do seem to be able to spread the virus. And adolescents also seem to show some more of the adult-style pathology. Hmm. So, So they're, you know, of all of our, they're a disproportionate share of our pediatric patients who are in the ICU, who show the coagulopathy. Yeah who are showing even some of this, the new um, PIMS, you know, the, the pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome. Um, so so they, they do well, but they do worse than younger children and they spread it more than younger children. So I'm encouraged by all of this. And I, I think it could be reasonable with, again, a non-zero risk to reopen schools and daycares and camps and whatever else for younger children. The risk would be mostly to the adults who come into contact with those children. But again, if the children are, have such a low frequency of spread, then that risk for the adults is also pretty low. Yeah. But not zero. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I, you know, I, I hadn't read about it in that detail, but when I did see it, I just was, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it just seemed like so outrageous that it was unbelievable because they're such just, they're just vectors of disease. They right. Are, typically. <laughs> there's some there's some people that say, oh, they have a much lower density of ACE2 receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they, when they do have their viral loads quantitated out, many of them have very high viral loads. So interesting. Yeah. So how do that how does like we just it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> we don't know the 42. We just don't have that answer. Exactly but right. but that seems to be the case. Interesting. Yeah. That's so anyway, that's, I think I think it's really encouraging. I think parents and and anybody else who cares for children should feel somewhat encouraged that if they need to send their kid out for childcare because they need to work and they need to pay the rent, it's yeah. not like a death sentence. They're not sacrificing their child on the altar of yeah. their job. But we are seeing sequelae and we are seeing some pretty sick kids. So mm-hmm. to your point, it's not absent of risk. It's just 
lower lower risk than you would think. So, you know, being a pathologist, you're the one seeing all of this, right? So, so let's talk about the sequelae that you're seeing. First, what are some of the lesser discussed manifestations of COVID that you're seeing? You know, the stuff that may not be- uh, in To be case. clear, in, in my clinical practice, I'm not seeing hardly anything. Oh, right. You're, uh, you're in a place where there uh, might, might be 5% of people having it. Right. And also, I'm a pediatric pathologist, so children are just doing so well with this that yes. we're, not, we're not seeing it. So, so everything that I discuss is always other people's work. <laughs> you know, I'm just the hack who tries to understand it and translate it and spread it around. But yeah, so it's, there's been a really interesting couple of phenomena, which people, of course, have noticed clinically too. The first is this really interesting coagulopathy. And not only are the COVID patients so hypercoagulable above and beyond typical critically ill patients, they seem to have a selective pulmonary coagulopathy. We always, we do see fibrin thrombi all the time in the small vessels in the lungs in ARDS patients. But what's unique is, A, we're seeing it at a very, a very high percentage of autopsies for COVID patients, and B, we're seeing it without evidence of systemic DIC, and it's pretty extensive. And I, we don't have any tissue samples or biopsies or anything from well patients who don't die, but I think clinically there's so many anecdota of people who seem well but then are just curiously hypoxemic. They're not in ARDS. They're not critically ill. They're not in DIC, but they're just really hypoxemic when they come in. And I wonder if it could be this pulmonary intravascular coagulopathy, which is a new term that was coined in Ireland um, because they saw it so frequently in their COVID patients. But there's a selective response in the lungs to making these little thrombi. And of course, whenever the small capillaries are clogged up with thrombi, you can't have any oxygen diffusion, right? So you'll be hypoxemic. But it wouldn't be enough to show up on imaging. No, no. And it could also show up as just those really fine reticular sort of ground glass opacities that we discuss all the time. We also know that the virus infects endothelium now. It's not just the epithelium, um, but the endothelium. And the endothelium also expresses ACE2 receptors. So I think it's reasonable to hypothesize you have a patient with a very high viral load and it's just the lungs are teeming with virus and the virus crosses over into the blood vessels, infects the endothelium. And of course, once you've got virus in the blood, you become viremic. So the virus can be disseminated throughout the rest of the body. So there've been some really nice papers that have shown SARS-CoV-2 in the glomerular capillaries in the kidney or in the small blood vessels in the bowel, um, causing people to show like a mesenteric ischemia picture. We obviously see it in the skin all the time. There have been lots of nice derm biopsies where there's great microvascular thrombosis. Oh, yeah. Is famous, that, is that COVID, toes? COVID toes? COVID toes. COVID toes are probably the chillblains are probably a, a vascular occlusive event. We certainly see arterial thrombi. You know, there was that Broadway star that had to have his leg amputated because he had an uh, arterial thrombus. There's a screamingly high rate of VTE, even on therapeutic anticoagulation. Mm. The virus is just, it, it just makes people clot. Yeah. Are you taking aspirin? I'm not. That's something the cardiologists have been discussing though. I mean, it's not a platelet pathway, right? Number one. It's it a just, compl- it thins the blood. So it it's more like blood. a, a yeah. like some hand waving. It's, it's, hand-waving. it's more like a... Yeah, I mean, it's a complement fixation thing, partially. 
And so it involves the innate immune system. And then it's also, well, there's a lot of factor eight, that, like increased factor eight, which is always an acute phase reactant, but that's massively elevated in COVID patients. So I don't know if aspirin would really touch any of that. It might make you feel better. <laughs> yeah, but uh, feel, a little, feel a little more comfortable. What about, so you, you are a pediatric pathologist. So let's talk about the, the PIMS. Yeah. And the Kawasaki-like syndrome. And actually, we are seeing a fair share of that in New York. You are. Unfortunately. You are. Yeah. Yep. So that was, right, the one saving grace of this illness was that kids were safe. And now we're finding out that that's, that's not the case. So, so pathophysiologically, what's, what's happening here? Well, it's, it's a hyperinflammatory response. It sort of mimics the cytokine storm in adults. But the interesting thing is that the time course, there's a lot of temporal heterogeneity in terms of how it's related to COVID infection. So some children are actively infected. They have positive COVID PCR tests for the virus. Some children have negative PCR tests, but positive serology tests. So they're in that latent sort of recovery phase. And some children, actually a couple of them at least, haven't shown anything. They've been so far out or whatever um, that they haven't shown any definitive laboratory um, COVID infection. So, you know, that does raise some questions, right? Yeah. As far as the pathophys, we've always hypothesized that Kawasaki's is a post-viral phenomenon. Perhaps this is just evidence of that, that it truly is. We definitely have seen that cardiotropic effect in COVID. That was reported very early on, even in uh, the, in Seattle in, in January. And, you know, that depressed cardiac output, um, sometimes very low ejection fractions, a myocarditis-type picture. We, we are now seeing the aneurysms, the coronary artery aneurysms in PEMS. And so, you know, what's, what's exactly causing it? Who knows? I think it could be either the, the pediatric equivalent of a cytokine storm in those who are currently infected. Or it could be that as you recover, you have massive amounts of dead virus in your body that you sort of are breaking down. And there could be some off-target antigen integration and then your immune system, which is all primed and ready to go, attacks those off-target antigens. I think in a high prevalence area like New York, it's entirely possible, and I don't have any evidence for this, it's just a hypothesis, that it could be a, a reinfection phenomenon. So the child has fought off the virus and then gets re-exposed because the virus is still circulating around in the environment. And then that's what triggers this hyper-inflammatory, hyper-immune response. They're, because they have immunity to it. Right. It's not like an infection is established. Don't get me wrong. It's not like yeah. they're reinfected, clinically reinfected, but they're re-exposed. And that could Which be- Which triggers the immune response and then yeah. they get this hyper, yeah. hyperimmune reaction. It, it could be. This is, again, it's just a hypothesis. Yeah. One really interesting thing in the original eight children in, who were reported in the Lancet, and this is from London, none of those eight children were actually Caucasian. Now that's a very small N, don't get me wrong, eight children, that's it. But that's obviously not representative of the UK population or even the London population. And since we know so much about the inflammasome as well as the, the coagulation cascade, so much of that has like a racial or ethnic predisposition. I haven't seen any racial or ethnic data from the United States to know anything about it here. But I've, I've been curious about that. Just was, it was rather striking. Well, the big children's hospital here is actually in Queens, which is... I think one of the most ethnically diverse places probably in the world. In the so world. Yeah. yeah, so if we're going to see any type of uh if we're going to be able to track some variation like that with with a very 
um, contained population. You know, Queens Queens is the place to see. Yeah, and it wasn't really reported in in China very much, um, yeah. or in Korea. But China had so many more cases. So I don't know. I mean, and none of the eight children in the Lancet were East Asian either. So none were Caucasian and none were East Asian. Who knows? So one final question, and I, I found it pretty incredible. You've been online. You've had an online presence for how long now? Uh, se- seven weeks, I think. Seven weeks, and you've skyrocketed to fame uh, in the in the physician. Of course, the master plan. That's yeah. it's all about the shares, <laughs> baby. All about the likes. Um, so, where can people find you online? Well, I have a public Facebook page, which is just my name with my credentials. So, Jennifer Caston, MD, MSC, MSC. So with this new fame, do you have any plans to uh, to pivot or you're just going to keep it keep it on Facebook and uh, and that's where you will remain? Well, you know, I, I'm very open to suggestions about what people would find valuable. So one thing people have said is they really wish like posts could be indexed, for example, and you can't do that on Facebook. I'd like to do that. A lot of people have asked for videos and I don't know, that's that's sort of a frightening new world. I'm with you on that. Uh, and that's why this is a podcast. <laughs> no videos. This vi- yeah. while while you did convince me that we would both have our videos up, this video goes nowhere. If uh, I did videos, it would be the uh, world's most low-fi videos. It would be like <laughs> one take with no graphics, basically reading something out. <laughs> and really and really grainy. Just yeah, to- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's one of those voice modulators. <laughs> You're gonna um, yeah, those like a like a singer, right? Yeah. Fantastic. I'd be auto-tuned. Auto-tuned. That's, I couldn't think of it. Auto-tuned. Yes. Um, well, thank you very much. This has been, you've had a lot of endurance, right? Your your posts, you said, are like 1,500 characters, but you we've been here for almost two hours talking about high-density stuff. So I, I really appreciate it. I've taken away a huge amount, and I'm sure, sure the listeners will as well. So I, I really appreciate you taking all this time. And and for continuing to put those posts up, really, like the the physician community, really, and we're all sharing it. We're all like, see, see. Anytime there's some uh, some new video that needs to be debunked, <laughs> we're all this is you're our, you're our source of information. So thank you for being the uh, the signal in the noise. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.